Hi everybody, welcome to Bone to Pick. I am Michael Davis and we are coming to you today from the brand new headquarters of Hip Bone Music here in New City, New York. And uh, I'm very excited and honored today to have an opportunity to sit down with a great friend of mine, uh, one of the all-time great trumpet players and incredible jazz artist, Mr. Scott Wenholt. Uh, Scott is one of the premier jazz players here in New York. Uh, he's been a member of the venerable Vanguard Jazz Orchestra for the past 18 years. Uh, for those same 18 years, he's also been a, a featured soloist with my all-time favorite big band, the, the great Bob Mincer big band. Uh, he's one of the most in-demand trumpet players on the New York freelance scene. Uh, he has worked with uh, everybody from Vincent Herring to Christian McBride to Kenny Garrett, the Carnegie Hall big band with John Faddis, Maria Schneider. Uh, he has released six CDs as a solo artist and appeared on over 100 CDs as a featured sideman. Uh, he is on the faculty of the Manhattan School of Music. And uh, I've been very fortunate over the years to, to get to work with Scott a lot. He's a very, very inspiring uh, player. And uh, he's been uh, kind enough to play on a couple of my projects, both uh, Brass Nation and the Trumpets 11 CD, as well as co-authoring a, a really, really great book called Maximum Mastery that he wrote with uh, Tim Hagens and Greg Gisbert, uh, we have published on Hippo Music, so super happy to have been fortunate to work with Scott. So first of all, and uh, without any further ado, Scott, thanks for taking time out and thanks coming over today. Thanks for having me. And uh, why don't we jump right in and talk about your formative years uh, growing up in uh, the Denver area, which is, of course, a beautiful place to be, and also, I understand, a very fruitful place for musicians, but maybe you could talk a little bit about your early influences and, and what it was like growing up out there. Sure. Um, yeah, uh, it was a great time. Uh, a fertile, I think it maybe still is, but certainly uh, back then, I started in third grade, but I'm thinking of high school mostly. It was a very fertile place. Uh, Greg Gisbert, great trumpet player, uh, also here in New York, grew up uh, in the same area as me. And, uh, we were in this different conferences, but we would get together and meet each other on, on, on all state things and community bands. Uh, he was a he was actually a, a, an influence on me early. He was more into jazz than I was. He kind of, his family came, uh, you know, they were musicians and he kind of, he knew a little bit more about what was going on than I did. So he, I remember him turning me on to Wynton Marsalis for the first time with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Um, and let's see, maybe some Count Basie stuff, uh, you know. Um, there were also a lot of, just, Jazz education in Colorado at the time was very strong. Um, a lot of guys that uh, I grew up with at the time have gone on to do great things. Um, so That's cool. Uh, in Denver also, you know, there was, it was a funny thing, you know, there, I was kind of just doing the, the high school thing or the school thing. I was never really a, a professional musician there. So most of my, uh, you know, the people that I knew and still know from, from Colorado are guys my age, the older guys that were doing some work People people will tell me, oh, so you must know so and so from Colorado, and I say, yeah, I, I heard of them, but I didn't work with them. So was, I kind of had a normal, you know, childhood doing all kinds of things like sports and mm -hmm. a little bit of music and a little bit of everything, I guess. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I always thought that's uh, good to hear you talk about your relationship with Greg. I, I found that fascinating to have such two, you know, monumental players in New York now, that, but both uh, growing up together, and that's, uh, I'm sure you fed off each other. Yeah, really we're kind well. of, like I said, we're kind of the same age, but he, I think he was a year behind me in school. But I, I don't know what year we started, kind of our orbit started coming into, you know, the same orbit. We, you know, we, we started to do things together. And like I said, he was just a, 
was just a little ahead of me in terms of what he knew and what to check out. I remember, I mean, I was such a novice that when people would, I was sort of playing jazz from an early age, but I didn't even know really what it was. And I remember someone saying, man, you play good bop. And I said, well, what, what's bop? He said, you know, <laughs> good bebop. And I still was like, what are you talking about? You know, jazz. And I was like, oh yeah, jazz, okay. So my, uh, my entry into playing music or jazz, uh, trumpet even, was kind of all accidental, I feel mm. like. So. Wow, that's interesting. Well, it shows, kind of shows how strong your ear is still, is obviously, a very important thing uh, for jazz musicians. So uh, clearly you had that in, in, within you at a very early age. Um, well, why don't we, we jump ahead and talk a little bit about your time at uh, Indiana University, of course, an amazing uh, music school, and uh, certainly the lineage of, of trumpet players who've gone there is spectacular, all the way from the great Randy Brecker, Jerry Hay, Chris Bodie, Kent Smith, Greg Wing, Bob Slack, all these uh, numerous great uh, trumpet players. But maybe you could talk about uh, what that time was like for you. Sure. You know, thinking back to when I made my decision to go to Indiana University, it wasn't a, a cut and dry decision at all. Um, I was studying with Dan Kewen in uh, Denver. He was in the Denver Symphony Orchestra. And he said, yeah, uh, my teacher, Alan Dean, teaches at Indiana University. And we also I had the, um, the connection to IU also with David Baker. He had been uh, a combo instructor of mine uh, at an Abersold camp when I was uh, probably in 10th grade or something. So I knew about David, was uh, like David Baker a lot, and Dan Kuhn was uh, uh, letting me know about Alan Dean. So the decision was kind of, well, okay, let's go to IU. It wasn't like, okay, this this is definitely the place to go. It was kind of like, eh, seems like that might be the best decision. So I ended up out there, uh, have no regrets at all. Studied with Alan Dean for the four years that I was there. Um, got my undergrad in uh, jazz performance, which is my only degree that I uh, actually got um, from colleges. Um, time there was great. That, that four years was also, I guess I'll, I'll use the word fertile again, uh, time. A lot of great players. Chris Bodie, you mentioned. Uh, Bob Hurst was there, a uh, great bass player. Ralph Bowen was there doing mm. his master's work, practicing about 10 hours a day, showing us <laughs> under, undergrads a thing or two, uh, I might say. Uh, it, it, of course, didn't inspire me to practice that much. It just made me feel about, bad about the fact that I couldn't quite muster enough strength for that. Um, who else? Sean Pelton was there. Jim Beard mm. was... We, we shared maybe a semester there. He mm -hmm. was a little bit ahead of me uh, in school. Um, who else? Tom Tom Gullion was there. Dave Bixler. Uh, many many good players. So mm -hmm. um, it was I, I, yeah, it was a great time to be at IU. Um, and I got you know I got a lot out of. I'm, we we mentioned Chris, I mentioned Chris, but you mentioned him first. But yeah, Chris was uh, was uh, was uh, three years ahead of me I think in school. You know, we were roommates for one year, or mm. housemates, I should say, at maybe my sophomore year of college. He was very, uh, used to call me the young cat, and it goes, <laughs> it's a, it's whatever, I guess we were all kind of young cats, because if you're, if you're the upperclassman by, by two or three years, that's the way it is. But he said, young cat, you know, we, we need some play, people to live in a, this house, you know, some other cats are leaving, you guys, you guys should come with me, you know, so the, anyway, he was real um, uh, friendly about, you know, being cool to the to the underclassmen, and uh, he was he was inspirational to me. Uh, he was he was a real straight ahead jazz guy into 
Miles Davis and Freddie Hubbard, and he was in David Baker's 21st Century Bebop Band, and he was, uh, yeah, he was doing all the right things. Uh, Chris was somebody who, you know, he's kind of taken some, in his path to where he is now, he's taken some, you know, I don't know, maybe I could call them diversions, some different guises of his career, and they've all been successful. You know, I think we all uh, were could see that Chris was going to kind of, uh, he had that personality and mm -hmm. that uh, uh, effervescence that um, was kind of, was, was interesting. I'd never really seen in a person uh, prior in my life and in a, in a trumpet player. Mm -hmm. so. That's interesting. I have a very, Chris and I have been friends for, for many, many years and the same kind of feeling when I first met him, he's so infectious and energized, like you just, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, sure, I'll move in. <laughs> really, really positive personality. Absolutely. Always makes you feel good. You know, you, you mentioned, did you mention Jerry Hay, I think? Too? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, Jerry Hay, that was an interesting thing for me, too. I did not know who Jerry Hay was, and everyone's saying, Jerry's coming to IU for a lesson with Bill Adam. You know, he would come back for, like, uh, well, he's, he had used to study with Bill Adam, and he would come, and he was already a, a well renowned famous trumpet player in mm -hmm. LA, but he would come back for tune-up lessons, let's say. I, I don't know what he would call them, but he, Jerry's coming back, and I'd be like, Jerry who? Jerry Hay, who's that? And then I got schooled, you know, I, I, was, I was, oh, he's on this album, and this album, and this album, and I was like, I was, I was really into pop music too, and, and uh, so I'd say, oh yeah, I didn't know that. I, I, I wasn't in the habit of reading liner notes uh, at the time, so I had no idea. Uh, so that was a little, uh, Guys were, you know, uh, very helpful at showing me what, and I'm proud of him too, especially the Adam students. Yeah, Jerry Hayes coming to study with our teacher, you know. And I remember, you know, kind of being in awe of, you know, once I realized who he was and kind of seeing him walk down the halls. I never, he wasn't there that often, but, I, and I didn't actually meet him there, but it was, yeah, that was a great connection, I think, to, to um, somebody who had studied there and become quite famous in LA. Mm -hmm. and, and like I said, that's, I knew I wanted to be a jazz player at the time, an improviser, but uh, I also wanted to play, you know, uh, lead trumpet or whatever, you know, uh, studio type uh, uh, section playing was also very interesting to me. So uh, it was it was an eye opener kind of to, to, to see that um, that connection between IU and I don't know, maybe making things a little more uh, immediate that we were going to get out of IU and possibly do well. I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the great things about going to a school like IU or, or Manhattan School of Music or Berkeley or North Texas or what have you, but just having access to alumni like that, that can be very inspiring. So that's, that's a very cool story. Um, following IU, you moved to Cincinnati. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your time in, uh, in Cincinnati. I know it's a great music town as well. So yeah, it, it, was real, it was really important for me. Uh, you know, I was still very formative years of my life then. And it was, again, maybe a lot of things happen as an accident in one's life. But, you know, I was working in the summers at King's Island, which is an amusement park in a mm -hmm. pop band, like Top 40s band. Uh, so I was meeting guys, jazz guys, too, in Cincinnati as I was, as I was there for, this, for the several months. Um, Pat Harbison was there, who I'd known uh, from Abersold Camps and from Indiana University, uh, where he did some master's work, I think, when I was first there. So he and some other people who were getting busy, uh, or who, who were busy uh, and getting busier, I suppose, in, in Cincinnati, kind of 
threw some things my way or I would go out to hear some music and, and, and get to know uh, the players in the town. So by the time I had spent three summers uh, in the amusement park thing, uh, I was starting to get a little bit of, a, I don't know, traction or I knew a lot of people at least. Mm. And I had a girlfriend that lived in Cincinnati and it was, seemed like, yeah, well, I'll just stay here for a while. And I was, I was, I can't remember exactly when, but probably towards the end of my college career, I was starting to get a little traction in Cincinnati. There were a lot of really great um, players, period, but certainly rhythm sections out there that were really, really good and not enough horn players, you know, to, I don't know, mm, to, wow. fill, to fill up bands. There was also Kurt Ram had left, uh, trumpet, great trumpet player who had left Cincinnati uh, recently when I was getting to Cincinnati. I don't remember the timing exactly, but there was a little vacuum there from him. He had done a bunch of bands, so all of a sudden I was there, and uh, Steve Schmidt, great piano player, said, oh, we have this group called the Salsa Renegades that Kurt Ram used to play in. Uh, can, you, can you do that band? And I don't know, just one thing led to another quickly in Cincinnati, and I don't know, it was... It was more opportunities than I would have had or did finally have in New York uh, more quickly. So hmm. I had a chance to get my feet wet, um, learn what it's like to hang out and be, I don't know, you know be cool. And uh, I think there's a, there's a little bit of an art to the procedure of coming to a new town. You know, you can't be too anxious or show all that anxiousness, mm -hmm. at least. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to, I, I think... Uh, I don't know if I, I wouldn't say I learned any big lessons, but it was a really good trial run to just coming into a new scene before mm -hmm. I moved to New York. And I don't know, just that year and a half there, probably growth that happened at that time in my life musically, uh, while I started to do some gig, get busy doing gigs in Cincinnati was, a, was an important uh, thing that I did. And also, you know, moving... When I decided to move to, to New York from Cincinnati, there were guys kind of saying, well, you, so are you going to move to New York someday? And I was like, well, I, I think so. I, uh, I wasn't sure what my timing was going to be. But they kind of let me know that that was, I should go. You know, mm -hmm. That was a viable mm -hmm. option. And, and so guys were really supportive as much as they liked having me there in general. I think they were also very supportive of me making the move to New York. And I, I really appreciated it. Hmm. that that's cool yeah it's good to hear that and uh, and I, I think you made a great point it's like in terms of uh, in initiating yourself and in, into a new scene it's like that uh, being able to be upbeat and uh, but not being too anxious it's a it's a key key a fine line I should say you, yeah, know? you know people are a little bit territorial about their certainly their general business uh, and I got to say the guys were very welcoming uh, in the studio scene such that it was mm -hmm. in Cincinnati. There really was a lot going on uh, for me at the mm -hmm. time. Uh, people I knew from Kings Island, you know, also doing things in the studio. So I found myself welcomed pretty quickly. Uh, and that's, I don't know, there's, I think I was pretty low-keyed about, like, taking over the town or, you know, whatever. <laughs> when someone moves to a town, you sure. feel like, yeah, I want to get established here. I didn't really feel like I want to really get established. I was just open to doing whatever I, I could playing mm -hmm. trumpet. So. Yeah, very cool. Well, we, we talked about New York. Uh, we should jump right into that. In 1990, you made the big move to New York. And um, maybe you could 
share some of the feelings that you had. I know, I think all of us have gone through that once you make, unless you're from New York, but making that decision to come here and it can be, it can be a, a, an energizing place, but a very intimidating place. So it's, I, I remember my first uh, couple of years here, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts are and what, what caused you to make that move and what, uh, what you were feeling at the time. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I remember a couple things that were important about that time. Um, I got a study grant to study with Dave Liebman mm. in Cincinnati. And that was through the, uh, NEA at the time you could write grants to, uh, to get money to study music, go figure. It doesn't, it's, it's a little <laughs> tougher to do now, but there used to be, it was kind of the end, end of the good days of funding for such things. And when I got that grant, that kind of, it corresponded with when I had actually decided to leave Cincinnati. So I had some money. This was a $10,000 grant that helped me move to New York. I didn't have much other money saved, but eh, 10 grand's not so bad at mm -hmm. the start for a, a 22-year-old, 23-year-old uh, uh, musician. That helped. Um, so I did study with Dave Liebman, uh, would drive out to Stroudsburg, and I did that, I don't know, maybe seven or eight times with him. That was helpful. I didn't know many people in, uh, in New York. I didn't have many connections. In Cincinnati, there were a couple guys who, I remember one guy in particular, I can't remember his name, but he said, when you move to, uh, from Cincinnati, when you move to New York, uh, are you going to do club dates? And I said, uh, what? yeah, I think so. I was thinking maybe that meant working clubs. I didn't right. know that re that referenced wedding bands. So I kind of uh, showed this you know, kind of question in my eyes. And he said, you know, wedding bands. And I said, but he said in kind of a way where I, maybe I should answer no, that I don't want to do those. But my, but my honest answer was like, uh, yeah, I think, don't I, and in my mind, I'm going, don't I want to do that? Is that a bad thing to do? So his, his take was kind of like, well, maybe you're just going to do jazz stuff. But that was kind of indicative of my uh, overall mindset was like, I, heck, I, yeah, I want to be in Art Blakey's band. I want to be in Horace Silver's band, of course. But I also want to just play the trumpet for a living. I was in tune with that idea. And some of my other friends uh, moving at the same time, give or take, were a little more set on doing more artistic pursuits. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of jealous of that mindset in a way. It, was, it made me question mine, but I watched some of them kind of flounder as, uh, as they were trying to get their feet on financially on ground. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I got to say that within... Keeping open to doing all kinds of things was was the way to go for me, and it, it's what I tell all my students now to stay as well rounded as possible, and open to doing anything and let things go where they may. Keep those big goals, which are super important too, in the back of your mind. Of mm -hmm. course, they're important. We're not mm -hmm. going to lose sight of those, but be practical about things, and that's what I did. And I think within, I don't know, I want to say six months, I got the feeling that okay, this is going to be okay. Mm. Because when I moved to New York, I right before I was like, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll just move back to Denver, maybe and live with my folks and figure out some other thing. Maybe go back to Cincinnati. And I was really was not like uh, sure that New York was going to work out. So keeping open to things or uh, just being lucky, I guess, uh, not having a whole lot of connections, but making a couple calls to club date people or. Uh, I called Chris Bodie, you know, he mm -hmm. hooked me up with some actually some club date stuff that he was doing at the time. 
Uh, I called a couple guys and they were helpful, but I didn't have a whole uh, support group. Let's see how to put that. Uh, I was jealous of the guys that were moving from uh, North Texas or mm -hmm. Miami or maybe even Eastman or Berkeley. They seemed like there was such a, a stream of guys coming to town that they were able to kind of hook each other up a bit with gigs. IU, there were some of us, but not nearly as many hmm. of the stream. So I was, I remember feeling like, well, I don't know anybody. Uh, but like I said, within that six months, I kind of got a sense that things were going to be okay because I was playing some wedding bands and some kind of bad Latin late night things, but paying some money mm -hmm. and starting to play a little bit of jazz around town, not really getting paid for it yet, but sitting in with really good players on it. So that's what I remember is, is the beginning of you know, moving to New York. Wow, very cool. And that's some really great advice there. I mean, I think I had a similar uh, outlook and I still do is, is that I'm, you know, uh, happy and, and strive to make a living as an instrumentalist and and of course we all love jazz and of course we want to be involved in projects that are artistic in nature but um but the ability to and 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 the opportunity to make a living playing our instrument is a great thing and it, and it speaks to i mean i think of you in that way every time we play in non-jazz situations you're just open to music and you and i think that's part of in addition to your incredible musicianship that's part of your success is that you still maintain that openness and i think it's uh, i think that's great advice well thanks Mike. you know i want to add that uh in an improv class in uh at iu i remember we were it was a little uh informal talk with david at the end of the class and, and i remember someone saying hey david do you think any of us will make it in new york and i thought you know quickly thought wow well that's it's a tough question <laughs> how you can answer. and it's kind of true but david without really pausing too long just said something like this, make it in New York, just find a way to stay in New York. And I thought, well, that wasn't really the, huh. <laughs> there was a lot of wisdom in that, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, the career or, you know, make it, it kind of means a good career, right? That happens so much later where we look back and say, yeah, that was, that was what my career was. Was that successful or not is open to interpretation. But I liked his, I liked his take on, you don't worry about that. Just go to New York and find a way to stay there. So that kind of maybe mm -hmm. that influenced a little bit my pragmatic uh, mm -hmm. approach to you know, yeah, becoming great. part of the scene. Great words for sure. Let's uh, let's jump ahead a little bit here, and, and I kind of want to. This is a little bit of a wide question, but just getting getting a, a variety of your thoughts about this. But the two gigs that I mean, you're so associated with so many different things, but two that really stand out to me, and that uh, that we've intersected on are the, the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra and the Bob Mincer Big Band. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about those bands and, and you know, how you got started with both of them. And if you can, just include this. Uh, a lot of times, I think we focus on your uh, virtuosity as a soloist, and, and it's clearly, uh, as we've said, inspiring and, and energizing. It's so great to hear you solo. A lot of times, I think you're very underrated as a section player. Um, you also play lead, but uh, you're often in the section. And I was wondering, it, it, in particular with the big band medium, how important section playing is, and maybe you could touch on that. I No less than the great Tony Cadlick has described you as one of the best section players in New York City. So um, clearly that's in your skill set as well, and, and I know you kind of touched on that as far as being open to music and everything, but maybe more specifically include that in, in your approach to the big bands. 
Yeah, that's that is a big. There's a lot of good things in there. You know, when I moved to town, Tony Cadlick and Greg Gisbert were. Well, I knew Greg from my childhood, as I mentioned. Tony was a new uh, new factor. I, I just met him uh, when I moved to New York. But we all moved here about the same time, We're getting on the scene about the same time. And I remember thinking, well, I'm a good sight reader, and I was. I, I'm quick study, whatever you want to say. But sitting next to those guys early on in my New York experience was like, whoa, that's even, <laughs> I'm going to kick it up a notch because uh, both those guys were just really reading great you know so that that impressed me early on um that i needed to keep taking it serious it wasn't like I, it was it wasn't a, uh, a big eureka moment i already knew that but it was like wow okay i'm gonna continue to take this very seriously mm-hmm. um i think yeah my affiliation with those two big bands you mentioned and many others there's a lot of great jazz players in town i think my yeah, one of the X factors is the ability to really support well, be a quick study, read well, of course, but to really have a good presence in the section, figure out what the lead player needs or be be open to, to morphing into whatever the situation calls for. I still find myself struggling with that or, you know, realizing there's different things that uh, particularly lead players need and some of them are explicit they tell me others most are not you have to figure it out for yourself there's Mm -hmm. subtle cues perhaps so i think that is super important and the reason i have been in so many great big bands um is maybe more due to that than even my solo i guess it's the whole package but i want to say it's super important uh i tell uh younger players that i treat my third and fourth trumpet parts in the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra or Bob Mincer's big band, uh, as seriously as as the lead player is taking his part. Now, mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't mean I, I, I'm never going to be as important as the lead player in what I'm playing on the fourth part, but you better take it pretty much as seriously if you want other guys to keep saying, yeah, I want him in the section. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, starting in the Mincer band, I believe it went like this. I was new in town, went out. One of my first things I did was do a, a Louis Belson tour, a big band tour, and the great Bob Milliken was playing lead, and that was my first uh, you know, brush with his, you know, meeting him and, and his and brush with his genius playing. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that was a, a month-long tour, whatever it was, a nice-sized tour, maybe at least a month. And... It went well, I guess. Bob must have liked me because I, I remember ending up uh, on Mincer's band soon after that. It had to have been. Maybe there were some other things Bob uh, Mincer was hearing. But I think it was mostly due to Milliken saying, hey, try this guy, uh, that I ended up there. And, you know, it's one of those things where you do a good job and one thing leads to another. I found myself uh, subbing with that band immediately. And I don't know, I don't remember... Bob Mincer ever calling and saying, so do you want to be in the band? It just kind of happened that mm-hmm. one. Um, and yeah, here we are 18 late, years later and, you know, I treasure all the, I think it's been six or seven CDs, recordings I've done mm-hmm. with that band. Same with the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. That one was a little different, the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. I think it was a time where my name was, you know, just in, in the ether. I was doing a lot of Carnegie Hall jazz band stuff. 
guess Mincer's about uh, probably right before I was doing the Vanguard stuff, subbing a bit on the Vanguard band, but not a whole lot. And uh, Ryan Kaiser had the chair at the time, and I, you know, I just I remember uh, Mosca, John Mosca, saying, "Hey, would you ever be into doing the band?" And I said, "Yeah, of course." <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying subbing. I didn't know quite how to answer it. And so it was just a time where Ryan was getting busier or whatever was going on. And sure enough, you know, I don't know, a little while later, that was a little more formal. Hey, we want you to join the band. We got a record coming up. Jim McNeely's um, um, Lickety Split album was uh, oh, just on the horizon. So that's the first one I did. Uh, so I was trying to do the math. Um, it's been 18 or 19 years since I started uh, that band. Um, so yeah, two kind of two different uh, 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 way circumstances of, of getting into a band, but neither. The, I don't know if you can try to get any in any band. You just kind of uh, go about your business. Uh, this is another thing I like, you know, thinking about telling my students. Yeah, there are some bands you might know you want to be in, and you can go, you know, visit their venues, hang out. And that's a good idea, and you can even express some interest. Hey, if you ever need a sub. But for the most part, you just kind of go about doing your thing and let the chips fall where they will. If someone mm -hmm. would have asked me years ago, would you like to be in the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra? I would have probably said, well, sure, yeah, wouldn't everyone? Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I don't know. What do you, how do you, where do you sign up? You don't <laughs> sign up. So I, I yeah, I, I like telling uh, my students about that, that you just, you never know uh, where things are going to lead. So you just you jump in the stream and, and get going. And, I've been fortunate enough to, uh, yeah, end up in some pretty good positions, big band-wise. We're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, so a lot of, a lot of great big bands that I've done over the years that I'm, I would have had no, if in college, if you had said you're going to do a lot of big band playing, I said, no, I think mostly small group, mm -hmm. which uh, was where my heart was, still is. I mean, but uh, some of the early on big bands maybe weren't as good, and I wasn't as enamored. But when I got into doing some of these great bands, we're talking about. I you know, would pinch myself sometimes because it was such a great experience. Mm -hmm. Well, you certainly bring so much to the band. I know sitting in front of you on Bob's band, uh, it's always a, a treat on every level. You. Well, you mentioned small group playing. Let's let's jump in that direction a little bit. Um, your association with Vincent Herring is certainly one that that uh, jumps right out. I know you spent uh, roughly four years with him and did a lot of uh, work. And you mentioned. Uh, live at the Village Vanguard CD before we started the interview, but maybe you could talk about your work with Vincent and then also maybe just, um, you know, some notable small group gigs that kind of jump out at you and you think, uh, oh yeah, those were kind of landmark uh, uh, events for me in my career. Yeah, you know, uh, so I'd been in town a short while, I guess, so, you know, in the, within the first couple of years, you know, I do remember getting the traction very organically. You'd go out and meet guys and they'd say, oh, have you met this piano player? Oh, hey, nice. To hey, you want to play a session? You know, and you know, so you play some sessions and sure enough, someone gets a record date and they're like, well, can you do the record date? Oh, a crisscross date? Sure, I can do it. Then, oh, Jerry Teakins hears about you and says, hey, do you want to lead your... It was very organic, the process, mm. I felt, uh, certainly early on, uh, especially when I was hanging out five nights a week in jazz clubs. Um, and that led to my name again being out there enough where Vincent Herring, it, it, it had come up enough times where Vincent said, well, hey, I heard about this guy, Scott Lindholt, and enough favorable things come back. Probably the same thing with Jerry Teakins, you know. 
there wasn't a whole lot of me on record for them to check out, so they just went word of mouth. And Vince's, Vincent's thing uh, was a little more formal, too, actually, in a way. He was, he was looking for a new trumpet player in his quintet, and I, the first time I met him was out at a club, and he said, yeah, I've been hearing a lot about you, and we got to play sometime. I was like, sure, you know, here's my card, whatever. Back then, we had gave cards to each other <laughs> for the digital age. So he called up and said, yeah, we're going to, I can't remember exactly the order, but there was kind of an audition. We're going to play over at this place. Can you, you come in? And he would start playing on just a tune. He wouldn't even say what it was. He would just start soloing on it. And, and then I would hear what it was or not. But I did hear them all and you know, would take the next solo. And he was, I guess, sizing me up. And, and uh, so I got that gig kind of that way. And immediately... You know, well, right away, I guess, uh, I don't know if he ever said, okay, you're in the band. He just called and said, okay, I got a bunch of gigs coming up. And that was obvious. We were going on a tour and there's going to be a record whatnot. Um, and that was a great, great affiliation for, yeah, I think it was, we were talking about it, but about four years, two or three records, including the Live at the Village Vanguard, which was, that was a dream. You know, I, it would be a dream to also record my own, anybody's dream to lead a, a week there with your own band and do a record date but do, being a sideman on a small uh, sideman on a small uh, group date at the village vanguard was definitely one of those pinch yourself moments so sure. and that record is besides the people who comment on my own recordings which is natural that they would do that i guess uh, other than that probably the most popular cd i'm on would be that vincent Herring. it's called folklore live at the village vanguard and people all over the world mention oh i have that hmm. or you know students uh, or yeah i meet young saxophone players especially they're like yeah i had you on a vincent herring album so i know that that sold well and got out there and was a yeah that was that was a uh, we traveled europe and uh, the us quite a bit where else did we go i'm not i'm trying to think we went to other any other continents but uh you know there were some great tours that we did i remember Rini rosness being on some Rini was somebody i was playing with a bunch she got me in uh into the her words i think kind of got me in with the carnegie hall jazz band mm. john faddis um who else back then uh bruce barth great piano player that i was recording with doing a bunch of crisscross dates my own daryl grant um mm. kevin hayes was another great piano player that i was starting to play with early on uh, all that kind of was happening concurrently with Vincent's uh, tenure, I guess. But some of it, I, I think a lot of it led towards Vincent's thing, that being a, you know, a pretty high-profile high gig at the time, mm -hmm. playing at the Vanguard, for instance. Mm, yeah. Let's talk, um, you know, you, you referenced your solo recordings. Let's talk about that. Um, you've released six CDs as a solo artist, which is impressive by any measure. Um, maybe you could talk about some of your favorites, some of the things, some of the experiences you've had in, in putting those together and, and what the process has been like for, you, for yourself. All right, yeah. Well, I'll start with the, the most recent one. Uh, it's a, a group I, I co-lead with tenor saxophone player Adam Kolker, great player. And it's a quartet that features Victor Lewis on drums, the great Victor Lewis mm. on drums, and Ugana Okeguo on bass. Uh, so it's a quartet, cordless uh, quartet, and I I love this group because I mean the recording I, I feel great about too. Uh, to comment on on you know just the product as the recording is it, it's great it went well, 
but I everything about that group I like the, the little more freedom that we get um, I'm doing a lot of writing for that group now we've got to kind of make a second CD happen soon I hope um, so I, I'm, I'm partial to that one um, I, they're all different you know I go back to the beginning one and I, as I said I think Jerry Teakins called and just said hey it's Jerry Teakins you want to do a record for me in so many words uh, you, you're gonna do the standards and you know some originals Originals, I don't write. I'm thinking, yeah, I, I'll do originals. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know how to write yet. I did. I thought I wasn't really a composer. I was more of an improviser. So I literally had written one tune for David Liebman because he said, I, why don't you write a tune for the next lesson? I was talking about these lessons earlier. He said, yeah. why don't you write a tune for the next lesson? I said, oh, I don't, I'm not really a writer. And he said, write a tune. <laughs> you know, and, and, um, I had probably a, a couple expletives yeah. in there, like, don't give me that crap. Yeah, yeah. Write a tune. And so I said, okay. And I wrote a tune and you know, he helped me through it, or you know, said what he liked about it and what he didn't like. You know, and that was really that was a tune actually that I ended up recording on this first record. So I had written that one, but it, I kind of had to uh, sit down and figure out how to write tunes. Hmm. So I, I think I came up with uh, three or four for the first record. So that one was an interesting one. It was just like, okay, and who do you want to use on it? Well, how about Vincent Herring? Because I'm uh, working with him, that would make sense. And then I don't know how we can't. It was other guys I was playing with. I think Dwayne Burrow was on that first record. Mm -hmm. Kevin Hayes, Billy Drummond, just guys that I was uh, working with a bunch. And then the next one, uh, so three crisscross records, and then they all just kind of. I was kind of calling the shots, but they were there was a little bit of a crisscross uh, family that I knew Teakins would be cool with, so that mm -hmm. had a little bit to do with it. And I, so I did three with Jerry and, and on Crisscross, and then two for Double Time when Jamie Abersold Jr., Jamie Abersold Sr.'s son, was uh, in charge of the label at that, uh, the whole time of it. And he said, yeah, we're you know, starting this label, you want to do a record? And I said, hey, perfect opportunity to do something different. And there was a group I was working at with at Augie's, which was a jazz club on 106th and Broadway. It's now called Smoke. But in, in, back in the day, I, I, I was doing Thursday nights for about three and a half years with uh, a group which consisted of Dave Berkman on Fender Rhodes, uh, Tony Shear on uh, stand-up bass. I say that that <laughs> way because he does so many different things now, uh, including singing, songwriting, guitar, electric bass. But anyway, he was playing acoustic bass and Andy Watson on drums. But that band never had an opportunity to, re to record on Crisscross for whatever reason. Um, and so I, I, it was after we'd finished the, our run of Thursday nights, uh, but there was a chance to finally record that working band. We had, we had not been, let's put it this way, the, we had only recently stopped doing that gig, so we were still fresh with that music. So I liked that for different reasons. It was more of a working band, like I said, and I like I like the Rhodes piano recorded. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, at the time we thought, well, I guess we have to play Rhodes because there's no piano there. So it's like, uh, you know, looking at it as not a, as favorable. But really learned to love Dave Berkman's comping on that instrument, and it was great to record that one too. So those ones stand out, I guess. Mm -hmm. Through the Shadows, I think it was a great day in the studio. That's uh, a crisscross day. It was a great day in the studio for me. You know, if you're a trumpet player, brass player, you kind of go, 
Okay, finally, I had a good day in the studio. You know, you take them as they come. It's, this is a one-day yeah. one experience, these jazz records. Maybe two, but none of mm -hmm. mine have been two days. They've all been one-day uh, events. So it's a little bit luck of the draw. You try to lay for them. But So that was a good day, and a lot, a lot of good writing on that one, I think, too. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, uh, they're all, I, I love them all. And, uh, actually, I remember hearing that group uh, at Augie's with the, uh, stopping by one of those yeah. Thursday nights. It was Great, great live as well. Really good stuff. Um, before we move on to your uh, work as an educator, I wanted to just have you maybe talk a little bit about how you feel the work scene is in New York, both from the jazz perspective as a freelance player and just it's kind of a, a little bit of a wide question again, but your thoughts about where it's going and where you, how you see things. I mean, of course, it's with, an, uh, with a, a nod towards younger players who might be interested in what you have to say and my sure. your advice on that. Well, you know, my anecdote that I like to think of or tell talk about when I'm given that question is when I moved to town, shortly after it, I met Lou Soloff and he said, may he rest in peace. I mean, he's passed away a month ago mm -hmm. about, as you know. Uh, got a chance to work with him over the years quite a bit, probably spent about a year my life on the road with him in Japan. Uh, <laughs> but when I was first getting to know him, he said something like that. I want to paraphrase it. I have to, but, you know, um, man, you and Tony and Greg, uh, Tony Cadillac and Greg Gisbert, we kind of moved at the same time. Like I mentioned, he said, you guys play so good. Uh, if you could have just been here like 15 years ago and he spoke from the heart. It was true. There yeah. was so much going on. 15 years prior to 1991 or wherever, whenever this time was exactly when I was talking to Lou. But I remember thinking to myself, no, I'm cool with this. <laughs> I'm busy. I like this. So both those things are true, I think. Lou was speaking of times where it was more fertile. You know, everything was going on. It's true. It was going down a little bit. But he was also losing sight by virtue of, you know, his career of what I was doing at the beginning. It's natural. And I know that that happens to me now when I talk to students and I say, well, things are still, they're going, you know, it's things are constricting a bit, mm -hmm. I think, in New York. And I, they, they honestly are. But I know there's things that you guys are getting into that I have no idea about. In fact, like just last week, guys were talking about this thing called house gigs or something where they, you're on a kind of a tour and you find someone's house, like they might call you and you got a pretty big room here. And they may say, hey, can we do a concert at your house on Friday night? You know, we won't serve alcohol or whatever the t details need to be to make that happen. That's something we would have never thought of, you know, when I was starting to get playing, play at someone's house. No way. We want to play at a club. Right. So I don't know how prevalent that is, but times are different and people, young cats are going to find out a way to, to make it to make themselves work, to find a way to make it work. So all those things are true. I think it's, it is harder, but they're, uh, it's still what I recommend doing. You know, you could possibly make a good case 20, 30 years ago. If you're a parent talking to your child who wants to go into the arts or music, you might have a pretty good case saying, why don't you do something that's a little more you know, lucrative or more mainstream? And, you know, whether you're going to do that or not is your business and what you decide to do is your business, too. But I find it harder now to make to make that to a young person deciding on their path because 
even those legit gigs uh, are not as legit as they used to be in mm -hmm. our society. Um, the pension that you may decide to make a decision because the pension fund's going to be there. And then they may say, whoop, we're taking that away. And you say, well, but I decided to become an airline pilot because of that. That was a big reason. Oh, well, sorry. And then, you, so I don't know, not to get too idealistic about that decision, but I'm, if you find yourself, even as things are constricting, getting a little bit harder in New York, say, or everywhere, I think it's still the decision to make and to support with your children as they, uh, if they're inclined to go in that direction. There are no guarantees. So, you know, pick, pick something that you are drawn towards and love to do. Also, another thing I think about, you know, as I talk about, you know, how the scene has changed, I remember moving to town and being on a Tom Pearson uh, big band uh, rehearsal. And uh, it was my first time ever, I think, with Tom Pearson and first time meeting many guys. And Dominique Duras, a great lead trumpet player, great classical player, one of the finest uh, kind of uh, studio classical players in town, or, or classical period, but I, I know he's doing a lot of work. Uh, studios and he does a lot of Broadway work but at the time he was doing Jerome Robbins Broadway and, and I just met him and he said man you sound good man, great mm -hmm. a little bit later he's like yeah man you, would you be in to plan my show and I was I was like kind of like a show he said yeah I got a Broadway show I'm like uh, yeah sure I didn't even really know what it was almost <laughs> I'd heard of it but I said well what do I do he's like I'll call you you come watch the book what's that you know I had, I, so that's how green I was and he was just meeting me and reaching out because he needed good subs because he didn't have enough. That's that's something that uh, doesn't happen anymore. Now it's that that scene has become uh, so sought after that uh, it's really hard for guys to just move to town and say, "Hey, I want to do Broadway work." Uh, it takes a little more. Yeah, everyone wants to now. So that's that. Uh, that's a kind of a sign of the times too that it. it uh, that doesn't happen anymore where you just move to town and someone would say, hey, you sound great. You want to play my Broadway show? It's like, well, get in line because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm trying to mm -hmm. service the other guys that I've known for decades, mm -hmm. possibly. So, Yeah, a lot of good thoughts and a lot of good uh, advice there. Um, let's talk a little bit about your role as an educator. Now, you're uh, on the faculty at Manhattan School of Music, one of the great music conservatories anywhere mm -hmm. in the world. Um, you've also you know, been a prolific uh, guest artist, clinician, um, private teacher as well, and also uh, your association with Jamie Abersold. You've been uh, on the faculty of his camps, which are amazing. I remember mm -hmm. going, when I was in high school, going to one of uh, Jamie's an amazing guy, and the camps are amazing, and having people like you on the faculty is what makes the thing so great. But anyway, maybe you could talk about how you approach being a teacher and okay. your approach to education. Yeah, well, you know, I came to teaching in a, in a very organic way as, as well. I. I thought I did not want to teach ever uh, when I was younger. I thought that should be something, you shouldn't be a bad teacher. You should have a calling to be a teacher too. Uh, I think it's great if you have a calling to be a teacher. I still believe that, but it's not necessarily the case or you know, you don't, maybe you don't find that you had a calling till later. I think as I started to do some teaching uh, and got some confidence that I could help people, then that grows and you get more of a, an affinity for it and get more serious about it and just get better at it. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a very slow process of me getting into that. I remember Jamie Abersold calling and saying, yeah, uh, I heard you on, I think it was Through the Shadows. You sounded hmm. great. Would you, could you, would you be into teaching at my camp? You know, sure. Um, 
within my first uh, week or so, talking to Jamie, I said, Jamie, you remember I went to these camps a couple times, and I had to remind him of one where he almost kicked me out the first night. <laughs> remember, we were making lots of noise, and I woke you up, and of course, he had no recollection. He probably does that every week a couple <laughs> times, but I thought it was I thought it was ironic that here I was on faculty, and he was he, he was just like, oh, yeah, I don't remember that. It, it, <laughs> he, he moved on to the next thing. Uh, uh, anyway, my 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 time as a student at those those two years was invaluable, great. I was in way over my head. I didn't know what I was doing. I was in the top combo, but I didn't know what the word changes meant. So it was a very interesting relationship for me, like with those uh, those week-long camps that I did in Greeley at the time. They don't do them in Colorado anymore. But So I, I, I think I taught for seven or eight years at Jamie's camps. And I kind of got busy with other things in the summers and we kind of not parted ways, but I've got, you know, he's hired some other guys and I, mm. I see him all the time. I just saw him three days ago at the UNC Jazz Festival, which he actually underwrites. I'm not sure exactly mm. what wow. that means, but he kind of puts on that whole giant festival. So uh, anyway, just an aside that he's he's quite a force in this music. Um, well, sure is. So that was that was something that got me a little more into the teaching thing. Uh, you know, my affiliation with a lot of these big bands we've been talking about leads naturally into doing clinics or talking about being a big band player because that's a vehicle for a, a lot of jazz education in all levels, including college. Um, so I found myself just getting called hey, can you come do a clinic at my high school or my college? Uh, just randomly started doing that kind of clinic work. And same thing for the adjunct positions in New York. Uh, maybe the first time I was teaching was at SUNY Purchase years ago. And then I came back there, did, did another couple years. The, the adjunct thing is, you know, a more ten, tenuous relationship with a lot of universities or colleges. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of Manhattan, though, I've been there for six or seven years now, and that's more of a steady position. Oh, it's still an adjunct position. That's the way New York is. Um, however, I, I might not have that position if I, I don't have a doctorate. That's the way things are. Mm. You know, maybe my experience would, would still level that a little bit. But I enjoy my, my really long day that I have at Manhattan. I, I have anywhere from three to six, seven students and a combo that I coach there. And really high level guys there, great players. Uh, for the most part, a lot of fun working there. Justin Chichocho is a lot of, uh, a lot of fun to work with, real supportive mm -hmm. of what, uh, what we're doing there. Yeah, it's a, it certainly is a great program. And you're, uh, I wish I would have had you as my combo coach when I was <laughs> in college. <laughs> um, well, listen, as we wind down, Scott, uh, I, a couple more things I wanted to, to throw at you, but uh, I wanted to just uh, throw some names of great trumpet players and, uh, and just give me your mm -hmm. your experience, a memory, a, a thought, uh, anything that just pops, quick, quick kind of thoughts that come in your mind. Let's start, uh, we mentioned him earlier, legendary player John Faddis. Yeah, John, great. Um, I spent uh, years, that sounds like it was years consistently on the road, but no. For several years I was playing in the Carnegie Hall Jazz Band kind of in the band. I never was really, but there were, Randy Brecker was really busy not doing it very much and other guys. So I, I found myself really welcomed in that band touring all over the world. And yeah, John was great, inspirational. He's one of these guys that as you hear him do his thing, it's 
beautiful lyrical high note playing that I'm speaking of, you think you're like, okay, I, I, I get it now. It's not whatever. It's not that way. He does it again and again, and you go, oh, my, I can't believe it. And then he'll do it, you know, he'll do it the next day, and you'll be like, I still can't believe it. It's so effortless and so good. And you'd think you would kind of get, uh, what's the word, inured to that? You'd be like, yeah, okay, it's as bad as again. But so that's that's what I was really struck by, his consistency and the fact that it always just viscerally kind of mm. kind of gets you as a trumpet player. Cool. Well, staying with the uh, upper register of the trumpet, a, a great mutual friend of ours and one of the all-time great trumpet players and characters, Nick Marchion. Yeah, Nick's great. I mean, what a good friend of mine, and we you know play in the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra together and have for, mm, how many years has he been in the band? Six, seven years now? I'm not sure. Um, yeah, he's great. We've done Broadway shows together, uh, lots of things together. Yeah, he's 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 doing a, he's doing such a fantastic job as being a lead player and leader in the Vanguard section. Um, he is very. Uh, so I was going to say finite, but he's very he is very direct about that's the word. He's very direct about what he needs as a section uh, as a lead player from me as a section player. And there's some things I had to kind of adjust that he wanted in my sound. And at first I, I was like, well, come on, I've been doing this band for years. What do you, what do you <laughs> I, I know how to play that. But it was a, it was a good low, uh, learning, growing experience uh, playing next to him because he really has an idea what he wants and, and what he needs from people. And he's able to you know, vocalize that, verbalize that. Also, he's, his, his knowledge of the music and how the charts go is way higher than mine, and he's only been doing it by, you know, half the time, less than half the time I've been doing it. But his mind, he memorizes a lot of the music, and he knows exactly what's coming up. I'm still like, what's next? If, he, if, if there's a lot of subs in, and I'm kind of directing things back there, I have to be careful that I stay on it, whereas he's kind of a natural at that. He's just a great, great player. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a player that I know has been an influence on you, Woody Shaw. Yeah, Woody was... Um, you know, when I was in college, uh, you know, so many players were new to me. Uh, I hadn't heard of uh, Kenny Dorham until I was in, in college, uh, for instance. But Woody Shaw was another one, and he, he he hit me as like, what the heck is that? I don't get. You know, like I was, it was not the bebop language, especially the first stuff I heard of Woody's. It was his own thing, and it uh, it really, yeah, it had a. It, an impact on me as trying to figure out how to sound that, I don't know the words, you know, it's hard to put it, how to sound like Woody Shaw, uh, that kind of energy kind of led me into like learning some Woody-ish, mm. uh, Woody-isms, whatever you want to say, kind of licks, language, developing some language. I'm talking about pentatonics, I'm talking about um, fourths, uh, parallel fourths, triadic playing that was uh, earth-shattering for me when I heard it at first. I was like, mm -hmm. I want to I get behind that. So, yeah, he was, he was one of the players that I fixated on when I was in, in college. Mm -hmm. And you've, uh, you mentioned him earlier, and he's such a great, great lead player and, and character as well, Bob Milliken. Yeah, Bob Milliken. <sighs> All the situations I've been in with him over the years, you know, uh, like I said, the, the Bob Mincer big band that, that I owe probably owe Bob Milliken for that uh, introduction and we still play in that band together uh, he's great I, he's 
I, I go back and I, I don't do this often, but some uh, Jack Schatz, who is a, a bass trombone player on that Woody Belson tour, sent me a link to a concert in the Vienna Opera House. And, mm. uh, and I, I checked it out and it was Bob Milliken the whole time playing lead. Man, it was just perfection. You know, just to hear it out of, to be removed. Usually I'm in the band or I don't, li I don't really listen to CDs with much. It's different to a, a live situation watching Bob Milliken just totally nail everything uh, like he did on the Vienna mm. concert. Um, was great. Plus, he's just a—he's a positive guy. He's a, one of the funniest guys in town. He and Byron <laughs> Strickland are two of the funniest trumpet players I've, I've had a pleasure of of knowing. And uh, yeah, I look forward to any time I'm playing with Bob Milliken. Very cool. And last, a couple couple of uh, the jazz world and the brass world has lost two two iconic figures uh, in the in the past couple months, and we'll kind of finish up with them. Clark Terry. Yeah, Clark. You know. We all, we all knew Clark, all of us trumpet players of a certain age, uh, considered him a friend. I, he wasn't a close friend of mine. I won't, I would not, I wish he was, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very important to me uh, and, and very supportive. I remember doing the, the, the Thelonious Monk trumpet competition, which the, the first year it was in existence, it was called the Louis Armstrong competition. They changed that. Mm. But I did that the year Ryan Kaiser won it. And so I went home, I, I was a finalist, but kind of went home like the rest of us with our tails between our legs, whatever. <laughs> and Clark sent $50 out of his own account just to help defray the costs of having competed, you know, going down to Washington, DC. It was just like a, a, a very nice gesture from his private bank account, which he had really nothing to do with. Uh, he was one of the judges. So yes, mm -hmm. he did have something to do with it, but. It wasn't the funding. It was coming from you know just him saying, "I appreciate you guys." And that that impressed me. You know, one other thing that I is an enduring memory was one time that he was uh, it was probably fifteen years ago or something. He was playing at the Vanguard, and there were a lot of us trumpet players down there, and it was kind of becoming a little. He was letting some people sit in, myself included. I, Ingrid Jensen was there. I can't remember everyone else. Several of us though. And, you know, I, I think I felt good about my playing. and I think we all did. Clark played last. You know where this story is going. <laughs> he came in and he played one, two notes. You know, the thing that, and buried us all, you know, just his sound and, like, attitude through musically. Boom. I was like, oh, why, why didn't I do that? <laughs> well, because I, I can't. You know, not, neither, none of us could. And I... I I'm I'm ro I'm romanticizing it possibly by thinking we all felt the same thing of like ah, oh, but that's the kind of player he was. You know, when I was younger, and and if someone would have said he's the type of player who could play one note and sound better than anyone else, I'd have been like, yeah, well, it's whatever. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's bullshit. That can't be possible. And now I know it's it is the case. Yeah, so absolutely. That's Clark to, to me. That's my most enduring memory. Awesome, awesome story. And we'll finish up with the. Uh, an iconic New Yorker, great, great trumpet player, the late great Lou Soloff. Yeah, and of course, you know, we've already headed, uh, talked, talk, headed in the direction of talking about Lou earlier in this, in this, uh, in this talk. So yeah, he is, uh, he was, you know, pervasive on the scene for much of his life, my, for my whole career here. Yeah, we, we played in many different situations, the Carnegie Hall Jazz Band a lot. He was the lead player there. 
the Manhattan Jazz Orchestra is is the group that I mentioned being over there, I don't know, 10 times with Lou. We used to go over for a month at a time. So, I don't know, maybe close to a year of my life on the road uh, in a band that Lou was playing in. So, yeah, that, uh, yeah, it's about a month ago, his passing. And yeah, anytime it comes out of nowhere, he wasn't a young man, but I, uh, he wasn't old either. You know, I, we just thought Lou was going to, uh, it's this way, I guess. As I get older, you feel like, oh, just, I'm going to see him again in a, whenever, a week, or mm -hmm. I don't know, a month, or maybe six months or something. And yeah, you just, uh, I don't, I don't want to take that for granted, uh, anything like that. Uh, not that, I don't know, it's not like when guys get older, you start to think that way. But I think in just in general, trying to have a little more of appreciation for what, uh, what I do. Mm -hmm. It goes even for travel, you know, uh, I haven't been in Paris in decade or so now. I used to go there all the time and I just thought, hey, I'll just keep going to Paris all the time, mm -hmm. for instance. Now I haven't been there in a while. So next time I go there, I'm going to suck it up a little more, just like really <laughs> enjoy it a little more. Maybe this comes with age, but I, I feel that way about um, my fellow players as, I mean, thinking of someone like Dennis Irwin, who's taken from you know, a great bass player with the Vanguard mm -hmm. Jazz Orchestra, who's taken from this world uh, by cancer at a really young age of like 54, 50, I think he was 54. But even Lou, who was what, 73, 72, 73? Yeah, that, uh, that really kind of uh, leapt up and kind of bit me in the, you know, mm -hmm. the rear, just thinking, oh, wow, I, uh, yeah, someone who won't be around and that uh, I don't want to take, I wish I didn't take for granted. Not mm -hmm. that I, not to say I really took Lou for granted, but you know, just to, to yeah, try to make the most of those relationships with, mm. all, with all these great players and I'm uh, fortunate enough to pinch myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are great words, Scott. I mean, it's, it's really so true of trying to live in the moment and appreciate, appreciate every moment that we have. Um, well, on a totally light note, mm. um, in addition to your trademark solos and great playing, uh, you are, I have to say, legendary in New York, uh, especially in the brass circles for a certain salutation that you have uh, trademarked and developed over the years. And uh, I think I would be, uh, I'd be in trouble with some of my trumpet player, our trumpet player colleagues if I didn't reference this in the interview. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Scott has, uh, he's a creator of, uh, of using the word all right in various situations where he might find himself. And uh, they can come out of nowhere. All of a sudden you can be playing in the Vanguard band and you hear it. And the other night you were uh, were uh, playing at the at my show uh, something rotten that I'm doing now. All of a sudden we got a, we got an all right out of nowhere and it puts a smile on everybody's face. So I figured if you wouldn't mind indulge us a little bit and uh, talk about how all right came about and maybe just give us a handful of your I know you have a, a variety of them that you use in various situations. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, we talked about this before. Uh, so I, I knew it was coming. Yeah, you know this. You know, I tell you want to be remembered as an artist or as a musician for things that you've done that are spectacular or, you know, good, you know, deep writing or playing. So I, I told my wife once recently, I said, Julie, I think I'm going to be more known for this stupid sound. This. All right. Well, for those of you who haven't heard it, it's probably most of you. It goes like this. So hopefully that didn't uh, ruin any of the mics or anything. Um, 
it's a it's this crazy sound uh, that that yeah it's kind of become I don't know thanks to Nick Marchion doing it a ton and he, he's more <laughs> of a he's more of a salesman than I am apparently on many things including this and he gives me to be to be fair to him he gives me full credit when people say and then people come to me and say oh you're doing the Nick Marchion thing and I'm like okay whatever sometimes I'll get into it but this is a sound that. I don't know, you know, for it's it takes minimal effort. Like if you're going to yell all right, you got to go all right. You know, it takes work. You know, this is like it comes from uh, comes from down here. And if you do that on a bandstand, it does draw a little bit attention. And it's kind of like I, I think you listen to some old recordings of Thad Jones's band or any band, but you hear all right or you hear Art Blakey say play your instrument. Or it's a little bit of a prodding. Uh, I have a I have an actually low sounding speaking voice so when i say hey yeah good job people don't even hear me say that whereas if i use the all right mm -hmm. i won't do it again um <laughs> maybe i will um it, it it's a little more yeah it gets across you know it's like a louder voice i don't know it's also disarming a bit i find sometimes if there's a little tension or if i'm just meeting someone i might i might make that sound and they can it's a funny thing for a grown man to make a funny noise like that so it's a little it's a little disarming in a in in a, in a good way, I hope. I hope I don't do it at the wrong moment. I, uh, whatever, we find ourselves at the vanguard. That's pretty much our greeting towards each other. We all, everyone has their own. You've got to hear Terrell Stafford do his version. Or <laughs> Tanya Darby's got a great version. Hers is, they're all quite different. Nick's is different, too. But it's fun. I don't know, whatever. I, people probably, some people probably think it's stupid. I hope they do. But anyway, <laughs> if I, you know, I, I was watching another show, and I went, I'm not! after someone, and, and the guy turned around and said, did you just give us it all right? And I was like, <laughs> "Wow, cool." So maybe that'll be my, uh, maybe that'll be my claim to fame uh, someday. I yeah. know the whole pit at something rotten was waiting for it the other night, and then know. you carefully placed it in the second act, and uh, everybody lit up like. So, uh, I don't want. I don't want to let them down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the people what they want. Well, listen, Scott. Uh, all kidding aside, this has been a fabulous uh, opportunity to hear about your extraordinary life and career, and uh, and so much great wisdom that you've brought to, to music and, and, of course, the artistry that you bring every time you pick up the horn. So thank you for coming over today and uh, spending some time with us. And uh, we look forward to everything you're going to be doing uh, for hopefully decades to come. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here and uh, look forward to seeing you on a gig soon. All right. Thanks, Scott. And we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.